the optimal life. So I think, Ryan, you're the first person. I, I don't think I actually know. You're the first person that's ever come on my show that was once pronounced dead. <laughs> so yeah. welcome to uh, being the first in that category. Take us back to that day in 2001. What exactly happened where they pronounced you dead and they thought your life was over? Yeah, so it was a, it was a Monday morning. It was about 7 a.m., I remember just driving in the front seat of my best friend's car at the time, and we were up all weekend partying. <clears throat> I, I just recently violated probation. And so, you know, my addiction was just was just so overwhelming at this time in my life that, you know, I just couldn't stop. You know, like it was like one's too many, a thousand's never enough. And so I remember sitting in the front seat and I, and I had a handful of Xanax, and I remember looking at my friend Ernesto, who was driving, and I was like, man, I feel like I'm immune to this stuff now. And he was like, yeah, me too. And, you know, I've been up all weekend, and, and we decided to, to take a handful of Xanax. And that was the last memory I had. Um, I woke up like a week later in the juvenile detention facility, and I had no idea how I got there. And so un until I uh, contacted my father, um, I was, it was, it was unknown to me how I got there and how it, end, how it ended up there. Um, mm. which is wild. Wow. So, so you, you guys are driving, you said the addiction was out of control. Was your addiction strictly drugs or was it a mix of drugs, alcohol and those things? Yeah. I mean, anything I get my hands on, but alcohol was definitely always involved because it was, it was the cheapest form of, of drugs that I could, I could consume. And you said you felt numb to the just because you were your, your body had built up such a tolerance from all of the ingestion of all of these drugs and booze over the course of time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, every waking moment I was consuming um, any anything I can get my hands on. And so, you know, at this point, 16 years old, you know, I've probably done enough drugs and alcohol at that time to, to, to for someone to to consume for a lifetime, you know, because that's all that's all I knew. Um, so you were 16, the date of the accident. Yeah. Wow. 16 years old. And then you take a bunch of the pills and then you don't even have recollection of the accident. And then you have no recollection of the next seven days of your life. Correct. I, I have like little vague memories that I, that I can, that I can look at now. Um, I remember one waking up in the hospital and, and seeing myself handcuffed to the bed um, and then I don't really have much memory there. And then the first memory I, I really have, I was I was sleeping in the detention center with my head on this um, this like metal table. And one of the inmates like slammed the table and was like, hey, you got to wake up for, for lunch. And I remember just like being in complete shock because I was like, where like where how did I get here again? You know, it was it was. Yeah, that had to be absolutely terrifying. Absolutely. So when they say they pronounce you dead at the scene, what, how does that occur? What do they think happened? Was your heart stopped? What, what was going on? Yeah, I was unresponsive. So, you know, contacting my father um, later on that day, you know, he, he told me what, what happened and we were in a high speed chase and we flipped the vehicle. I was ejected from the, the vehicle and I was, uh, I, I had no pulse and they trauma hawked me to, to the hospital um, from, from that, from that, uh, accident scene. And so they, you know, I, I think it was a mixture of like overdosing and then the severity of the accident. I think it was a combination of both. 
And um, they, they attempted to continue to, to revive me. And that's why they trauma hawked me to the hospital because I was on, I was on life support. But they actually declared that you were dead. Correct. Yeah. Mm. So they declare you dead and they put you into a, a coma with the hopes that you're going to wake up, which you, which you do. Is that right? Yeah, I woke up. I was only out for two days. Um, so. And you're 16 years old. So, uh, I mean, that had to be such a horrific event for your family at that time. You mentioned your father. I know that there was issues that started way back because you don't get to that. You don't get to that night at 16 years old as your first go around. This is a steady increase in drug addiction, alcohol addiction, family trauma. And I believe it started for you all the way back when you were about, uh, well, when you were young, I don't know how old you were, but you lost your sister at five. She was five. I was five when my sister passed. She was turning seven. You were five. Okay. So she was seven. Yeah. What is Alexander disease? You know, it's, it's a rare disease. And and what's interesting about it is it's, it's only found in, in, in Jewish boys, which is, which is, which is, which is pretty odd. You know, my, my mom at one point had like this conspiracy theory that the, the vaccines that they gave her were the cause of it. And then they just labeled it as Alexander's disease because after she got her last vaccine um, is when it just progressively got worse. And I don't know if that's, that's just what my mom's belief beliefs were, or, or she was having such a hard time accepting it because it was such a rare disease that, um, yeah, it was, and I, and I'm sure, I mean, I could, I can only imagine, you know, being a parent and, and, and having a daughter that was just diagnosed with something that's extremely rare. Um, and so, yeah. What was the feeling like for you at five years old? You remember losing your sister. You could remember that, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was devastated. She, she was my best friend, you know, and, and because my sister was ill, um, my family allowed me to spend a lot of time with her because they, they knew she was going to pass away. And so I, I think, you know, made it even more difficult because we, we connected on such a, a deep level and she was my everything. And I remembered, um, my sister had a, uh, a seizure um, on my birthday, on my, on my um, five-year-old, my, my fifth birthday, and they rushed her to the bathroom and they were putting her in the tub with ice. And that was the last time I got to see her. So at that time, I adopted these beliefs like it was my fault, you know, and then my parents wouldn't let me go to the hospital with her because, you know, they were, they, they didn't think that it was appropriate for me to be there. And so I, 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 I was so upset with them because it's like, Hey, this is my sister. Like I I also want to be there, you know? And I remember going to my grandparents' house and I remember the day my mom came home and and told me the news that my sister passed away. It was, it was devastating to me. So so if I'm understanding you correctly, your five-year-old self had believed that you were basically being shunned by your parents. You felt that you were the the cause for her demise, your sister's demise. And because of that, they were keeping you away, whereas they were really probably just trying to keep you away from all the traumatic things happening at the hospital. Yeah, that was my perception because I just, it just didn't make sense to me. You know, like, this is my sister. I love her to death. Like, why, why aren't you allowing me? Because I wanted to be there and they didn't want me to be there. And so that was where the conflict um, came in because it's like, hey, this is this is this is my sister. Like, I want to be there as well. And so then I, I just, 
it just didn't make sense. And, and even up until that point, you know, my family spent so much time, you know, taking care of my sister and, you know, at the hospital. So I already felt this, this lack of, of support and love from them because they were so busy doing their own things. And so it just continued to add to that. And it just continued to progress, you know, these, these beliefs of like, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not lovable or, you know, I'm not accepted or, you know, I'm the, the, the black sheep in the family. That's, that's how mm. it felt. Yeah. Wow. So what happens with your mother? She starts declining after this, the loss of her daughter. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah. She, uh, she turned to drugs. That was when her addiction progressively got worse. And what kind of drugs mom, was she into? She, she was an opiate user. She was, she was in, she was in school to become a nurse. So she, she developed a lot of relationships with the physicians and she started getting prescriptions, hmm. uh, you know, because of the, the, the trauma that she went through losing my sister, her daughter, you know, they were prescribing her antidepressants and, and, and painkillers. And, and then she just progressively got worse. And what about your father? Was he around or were they divorced? Yeah. So right after my sister passed away, they both divorced. Um, you know, my mom and dad were fighting and, you know, they're blaming each other. And, you know, my dad worked, he, he was, uh, he, he was a hard worker. So he would wake up at 5am and get home at six, seven o'clock. So um, I didn't have much, much time with him as well. Um, and, and he was very, um, you know, he was, he was raised from a uh, staff sergeant. And so my grandfather was like really tough. And so my dad was like that too, you know, didn't express his emotions. And, you know, and he, his way of reprimanding me was, was through physical violence. And so he was extremely angry and, you know, I was there and he took a lot of that stuff out on me. Mm. So here you are, five, six year old boy, your parents divorce, you lose your sister, your parents end up divorcing shortly thereafter. Your father was somewhat abusive. It sounded like that was the way he handled it with you. And your mother was on a decline because of her drug use. How, who's taking care of you? Do you become the man of the house at that age? Yeah. I mean, I grew up very fast. You know, I, I, I learned at that, at that age, like I have to figure it out on my own. And that was the beliefs I started to adopt. Right. And it was like, I got to figure this out on my own. I gotta, I gotta entertain myself. I have to keep myself busy. And so I just constantly found myself, you know, doing everything I could to, to, to avoid feeling these feelings. And, you know, I started hanging out with the older kids in the neighborhood, was smoking cigarettes, you know, skipping school, um, just doing anything I could to, to, to feel accepted, you know, and, and every now and then I'd, I would go to my grandparents' house um, and I would just bounce around. You know, my mom started to use me because my father didn't want my mom, my, my father didn't want the divorce to happen. So my mom started using my father to, to get money to, to supply her drug use. And so she used me also during that time because my mom would dangle that carrot, you know, like I got to take care of Ryan, you know, I got to do this, I got to do that. And so my father would just continue to give her money. And so I started to learn these behaviors at, at such an early age. Mm. So your mom was using you as the prop. She was, your, your father was giving her money, not realizing that most of that money was going towards the addiction. Correct. Mm. So at what age, Ryan, does it really start intensifying then for you? When do you start turning to some more severe drugs and, and alcohol? Yeah, so I would say by age nine is when it really progressed. And that was the time. My mother at this point remarried. 
and she had a um, another son, my brother Christian, and she was in an extremely abusive relationship. And so, right after when my brother was was born, um, my mother and this gentleman got into a huge fight, and he ended up shooting her with a three fifty seven Magnum in the throat. And um, I don't know how she survived it, but she did. And um, that was when it just really started to progressively get worse for me. So your mother is still alive? No, she passed away in 2018, but she survived that, that, that experience. Wow. Yeah. What, what is, uh, I assume as a young kid, when that happens, the trauma has got to be so overwhelming that the only thing you can do as a nine or 10 year old kid is block it out. I mean, it, what, how, how do you, do you remember how you reacted, how, how a little human that age is able to react to something like that? So I remember I came home from school and my father was in the kitchen drinking and I remembered him standing at the bar and he's, and he looks at me and he says, your mother was just shot by Kevin and I don't think she's going to live. And it was like so emotionless and it was like, so like matter of a fact. And I was just like, like in such shock, I remember like walking to my bedroom and that was the first time I started to, to think about maybe I should just take my own life. Like maybe, maybe that, maybe I don't deserve to be here. Like this is just, this is just so painful and so overwhelming. I remember just like freaking out in the bedroom and like kicking the walls and just going nuts, you know, and, and I just didn't feel safe at all. And I know my grandparents ended up coming to the house because I called them and you know, they knew my father was an alcoholic. Um, and then they brought me to see my mother in the hospital. And I, I, I still can't believe, I guess because the, the gun was so close, the, the bullet didn't have a chance to like, uh, like spread, I guess. And, and so it was just like a clean, clean shot through. You're saying the gun was basically touching the neck. Yeah, it was right on her neck. And so it literally just like went through her neck and came out the back. Um, missed. Without, without like shattering the entire system. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah, which is wild. You know, it's it's it, and I just remember just being so scared and just like overwhelmed with fear and just anxiety. And 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 yeah. And so then, you know, she ended up getting out of the hospital and. I would say within like six to nine months, she ended up getting back in that relationship which is insane. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. So this guy who attempted to kill her, he wasn't put behind bars. So at first it was, you know, he attempted to murder her. And then my mom, you know, being um, a domestic violence um, uh, survivor, she, and I understand this now domestic, what happens with people that are, are experiencing that she started to change her story. And then, you know, his family was very wealthy. And so, you know, the lawyers got with my mom and they started to change the story. And I think my mom even like said she lied under oath and it was like this whole big ordeal. And so long story short, the case got thrown out. Um, they got back together. And then, you know, within, I think within like another six or nine months, um, they got in another big fight and he stabbed her 13 times and again, attempted to take her life. And, uh, and so, and she survived that too, but this time he ended up going to jail for like 18 months, which is crazy to think about it. Like if that were to happen today, I mean, this, you know, someone would be experienced, you know, yeah, you'd hope that they'd be put in prison for essentially their entire lives. I mean, 
for something ridiculous, so, so horrific like that. Yeah. So you've learned, uh, you, you mentioned that you understand now the mindset of a domestic abused person at a high level. What, what is exactly is that mindset? What are those people going through? How do they, what are they doing to justify, Hey, this is an okay situation. Yeah. I mean, having such low self-esteem and, and really boils down to like them hating themselves and, and, and not really feeling like they're ever going to be accepted. And so it, it becomes normalized. It becomes like, like, okay, this is, this is better than nothing. And, and, and the, the wiring in your mind teaches you that like, Hey, look, like this, this behavior is normal because like what you're seeking is love and what you're seeking is attention and, and what you're receiving is violence and abuse. And so your brain starts to hardwire itself to think like, this is what love is. This is what, this is what, this is what you're worthy of. And so it becomes normal and, and they just continue to go back. And so for me, like how that shows up in my, in my life today, I, I can normalize like dysfunctional relationships. You know, like if, if I'm fighting with somebody, like the meaning I give it is like, okay, well, you know, they say they love me, but these behaviors aren't aligned with how I want to show up, but they're saying they love me. So that, that must mean they love me. And that must mean it's okay. And I'm going to stay where I'm at. Mm. So that's something that you consciously deal with and live with every single day. You have to remind yourself when it's happening to you, wait a second, this, this is feels like, okay, this is supposed to be love. This feels like a good situation but the actions aren't aligning with those words. Correct. Yeah. And so I would say the last five years, I've progressively gotten better in this area of my life because I've done a lot of work on this and I've, I've focused on this. And um, it's, I'll, I'll give this analogy. It's, the, it's like the boiling frog analogy. So if, if you have boiling water and you took a frog and threw it into the boiling water, the frog would immediately jump out. Well, if you took a, a pot of water that was room temperature and you put the frog in the water, the frog would sit there and the frog would just swim around. And if you slowly started to increase the temperature, the frog would normalize the temperature and eventually the frog would just die because it doesn't know any better. And so that's the experience of domestic violence. And that's the experience of like being in dysfunctional relationships. The, the human mind starts to adapt to it and it starts to become normal. And it's like, well, I guess, I guess this is normal. Like I'm, I'm, you know, because immediately you have the shock to your system, your nervous system's like, wait, this is bad. But then all of a sudden you stay there and then all of a sudden it starts to normalize it. And, you know, the, the human mind is, 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 is so powerful and, and we can adapt to any environment. So it, it's, it's extremely challenging because it's like, you, you look, look like war veterans, right? They teach the, they teach these soldiers, you know, not to share secrets and, and they're tortured and, and think about that. Like, imagine like a, a, a soldier being tortured. Somehow, some way, they're able to override their nervous system and, and normalize it. And that's what happens. And it's 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 so difficult to get through because it's like you're you're surviving through this process. Oh, that's incredibly incredibly intense and a perfect analogy. Uh, really eye opening. So I, I want to get back to. The, getting to that date in, in 2001 where your life basically takes a, a full 180 turn, uh, the day that you essentially died. Um, but as you were getting to that date, you talked about how 
one was too many and a thousand wasn't enough. The, the famous John Daly, one beer is too many, ten's not enough, right? It, once you start, you can't stop. Right. So, um, so how bad did it get? How bad did it get? Because you mentioned that you were already under probation. So at what age do you hit probation and what was causing you to get to that probation state? Yeah, so my 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 first time consuming um, drugs, I was 11 years old and I was with my mother. She introduced marijuana to me. And this was an opportunity for me to bond with her because I, I wanted her love and, and her attention so bad. And I knew this is what she did. And so I started to, to, to use and smoke weed with her. And then it progressively got worse. And, and what I realized the first time I, I smoked, I was able to like feel normal. I felt like, like common. There was like a, a sense of calming that, that came over me because my life was so extreme up until that point that I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like all these problems disappeared. And that was, that was the solution to my problem up until that point. And so it just progressively got worse until I was 14 years old. I was 14. I had run away from home at this point. And I was with a group of friends up in Ocala, Florida. And I, I robbed the convenience store with a, with a handgun. I was you know, stealing, uh, stealing cars and robbing houses in the Ocala area. Let, let, me, was, just stop, let me just stop you, Ryan, real quick. Sure. 14 years old, you, you make a, a plan to, to run away. Yeah. When a 14 year old makes a plan to run, run away, what does it look, what does that look like? Was that just all in your head? Hey, I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night and I'm gone. Or did you lay it out methodically? Yeah, I was with a group of friends and we were you know, drinking and partying and, and they were like, let's go to Ocala. And I knew the only way that I was going to be able to go is if I just ran away. Cause I knew my parents, you know, they, you know, they wouldn't allow me to do that. And so it was just like, impulsive spur of the moment just hopped in the car and just went went to Ocala. and all these guys are in the same mindset that you're at at this place drugs alcohol mischief all that kind of stuff yeah yeah, yeah. so and you guys have guns that are obviously not legally yours correct and you decide to go and rob a convenience store correct hmm. what did you get from the robbery it's so embarrassing. My friends make fun of me. All I all I got was a, a 18 pack of Budweiser and a carton of cigarettes. <laughs> 18 pack of Budweiser. So I, back then it was probably what five dollars, <laughs> right? Like 18 pack of Budweiser and, and a pack of uh, a carton of cigarettes. Yeah, I and wasn't a successful criminal. <laughs> that's a good thing, I think. <laughs> um, so you do that, you get caught. Yeah, and so we so after I robbed the store. There was like um, a, a neighborhood close by, and then there was a group of us, and so we 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 stole two vehicles. Um, they had the keys in them, and so we jumped in the truck. And one was a pickup truck, and one was I think a a, a Bronco. And we we drove back to the the house that we were all in, and we at this point were planning on you know packing up the stolen vehicles and heading back home. Um, and then the police came. And then they arrested us. And so that was the first time I was arrested. Uh, let me ask you several things about the, the mindset in those situations. You, you rob a convenience store when you're actually, the gun was loaded? Uh, yeah, it was, it was a loaded gun. So you go into this complete stranger. Do you feel any sense of remorse for this person when you're going through it? You know, at the time, I, I just I, I was so afraid and, and so anxious, and I was I was under the influence, so I didn't really have 
much thoughts going on. I just knew that, you know, I, I felt like this is what I had to do. You know, I, I felt like I have to do this. This is what I have to do. Everybody wants drugs and alcohol and I'm the one that has to step up, you know, and again, like adopted that, that belief as, as a younger boy of like, I got to figure this out on my own. And so it was, it was, I felt like it was called upon me to do it. And so I went in there and, and, and did it. And so there's no guilty conscious. You're not even in that kind of state. Your, your mindset is altered because you're on the drugs, the alcohol, whatever else is going on. And then if that person wouldn't have complied, do you ever think about you would have, would you have killed them? I, I, I don't think so. You know, I, I, I never wanted to hurt anybody. You know, it was never, it was never the intention of that. But that has to be a scary thought once you, especially into your adult life, looking back at that 14 year old scared boy, that has to be a really disturbing thought to think to yourself, gosh, could I have done that? And how different would my life look right now? Yeah, I have many thoughts like that where where there was there were situations where if something would have happened, you know, slightly different, my whole entire life would be would, would not look the same. And 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 this is where like my my relationship with God is is so important because I know the only way that I am even sitting here with you today on this podcast is because he he had a plan for me and he was he was guiding me through this whole time because I've had multiple overdoses. I've had multiple car accidents, you know, facing 25 to life in this current situation. And for some reason, I just kept getting second chances and I just kept getting, you know, uh, lesser of the consequences. And, and, and there's really no rhyme or reason. I remember literally sitting in the juvenile detention facility with guys with much lesser charges than me, you know, ended up getting adjudicated as an adult and, and facing 15 to 25 years. I mean, the friends that I was with during that time literally have spent 18, 20 years in prison and they gave me nine months. And so I, I don't know how that stuff happens, except, you know, I know God was looking out for me at that time. So have you been sober then since you woke up from that accident in 2001? Yeah. So October 8th is when, um, I was in the accident October 9th. I started my sobriety date because that was the day I remember opening my eyes in, in the hospital. So October 9th, 2001 is my sobriety date. This October, I'll celebrate 22 years. Mm, congratulations. That's incredible. So you're 16 years old and you basically have to start day one of your life. You have a new life. There's two lives. Your first life died truly, truly uh, was put to rest in that car accident early October of 2001. And then your new life begins as still a kid. I mean, you're, you're only 16 years old. You've already had a lifetime of trauma, a lifetime of tragedy, a lifetime of heartache in 16 short years. So you wake up. I recall you said your dad was involved with you um, telling you what had happened. Take us through it again at a high level. I mean, where do you go? How do you start making such drastic changes? Or does it really still take a long time to get there? Yeah, I mean, it's been a heck of a journey. You know, it has not been easy because a lot of these behaviors still lingered for a very long time. You know, a lot of resentments, a lot of anger, um, a lot of you know being in revenge with both my parents up until when they both passed away. 
And it's, it's been, it's been 21 years of, of healing and, and doing deep, deep work around where all these patterns and, and beliefs came from. And so, you know, thank God I was introduced to a gentleman uh, by the name Dave, Dave Hot was his name. He, his, his, he had a, he was in a motorcycle gang. It was a sober motorcycle gang and um, they called it the alternatives and his name was Rev. And so I they, they introduced me to him at 16 when I got out and he was the gentleman who took me through uh, a 12 step program that I've been practicing for the last 21 years. And that was the lifesaver for me. You know, I was able to, to really deal with a lot of these, these internal traumas and, um, and thank God, because I would not be here today if it wasn't for that. It's amazing to me talking to people, how vital and critical community really is. Uh, people that have been addicts or, or alcohol or uh, heroin, anything, how, how important like the AA community is, how important it is to find a mentor, how important it is to find a coach, because without it, you're just, a, you're a lone ranger trying to figure it out. You think you've got it all figured out. Meanwhile, you're completely, you're out there in the wild with, with no direction, no one to guide. So it's amazing to me how, how that is. And it's also amazing to me how very often, when I, and I talk about this all the time, people need a true rock bottom moment to turn their lives around. Because if you don't hit that rock bottom, you continue to do the, the 10 drinks, the 20 drinks, the pills, the this, the that, the robberies, the fights, the, the, the trauma, the problems, et cetera. You do it. You keep your head a little bit above that water. You continue down this, this dark path towards nowhere. So often people don't turn it around fully until they hit rock bottom, until they wake up after seven days in a hospital with no recollection of what just happened. That had to be the scariest thing you've ever experienced. It was. And it was actually the first time I actually had a, a sense of, of, of peace because I knew at this point, you know, I, I spent two years in juvie as, as a child from, from 14 to 16. I was in and out of juvie. Um, and I was looking at 25 to life at that point. And so I knew, I thought prior to, to getting out of that last situation that I was going to spend 25 years to life in prison. And so as soon as I was given another chance, I realized that like, to your point, like it was the, 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 the consequences were so severe that I didn't have another option. I did not want to spend the rest of my life in prison. And so then they told me, Ryan, if you go to this 12 step program, you don't ever have to use again. And I was so willing at that point, I dove in with both feet and I'm so grateful for that because I would not be here today if it wasn't for that. When did you then start? Uh, we level up. So I started the company in 2013. Um, it wasn't called We Level Up at that point. I, I bought into, my father and I actually bought into a, a program um, that was called Holistics by the Sea. And then over the last, you know, over the last uh, five years, we've, we've changed the name. Or 2019 is when we changed the name to We Level Up. And so it was Holistics by the Sea up until that point. And then, you know, I went to Tony Robbins. I spent a lot of time with him. And I created a brand that aligned with my lifestyle and aligned with, you know, my purpose and mission here on earth. And so we level up is, is how I live my life. Everybody around me that, that is in proximity of me has that same mindset and is looking to achieve the same goals. 
you know, and you mentioned, you know, your community is everything, you know, you're a product of your environment, you know, the, the, the human mind looks to adapt to behaviors and, and familiarity to, to feel a part of, to have this sense of belonging. And so if the community that you're involved with is doing things that, that you don't approve of, eventually you'll start to do those behaviors because the sense of belonging is much higher than, than values and morals in most cases. And so that's why it's so important to choose and pick your friends because, you know, Tony says, if you want to see where you're going in life, take the sum of the five people around you and, and, and that's where you'll be. That's where you're headed. So we level up. You guys are helping people uh, through addiction. We'll talk a little bit about more about exactly what you guys do. Yeah. So we level up is a, a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program. And we also treat primary mental health uh, diseases as well. And so uh, we have uh, eight facilities in five states and we serve about 10,000 patients a year. Uh, a lot of, you know, there's about 3,000 actual patients that visit with us. And then we also work with the families and siblings. So accumulatively, there's about 10,000 people a year that we're, we're serving. And we help people just like myself get off of drugs and alcohol and repair the, the, the family dynamic because it, it is a family disease, as I've experienced. That's got to be so rewarding for you. You guys got, you, you have about, what, 200 inpatient beds? Yeah, we'll we'll have a total of 302 when when we're completely operational, but there's a couple of facilities that aren't online yet. Okay. So some of these people are actually staying in the facilities. Yeah, all of our our program is inpatient, so they stay with us for about 30 days. 30 days. Okay. And then what about the the events? Those events take place all throughout the country? Yeah, so we level up personal development is uh, something we do here locally in, in South Florida. And the, the, the objective with that program was to work with people in the industry and, and teach people about what a mental health awareness and, and create an environment and a community where it's, it's, you know, loving and supporting community. And we're working on these childhood traumas, or we, we teach experiential therapy, we give the tools and the solutions to those that are suffering with those childhood problems or, or anybody that really wants to elevate their life and, and, and surround themselves with, with, with people that are supporting in that way. Mm. You mentioned too, that you held some disdain and some ill will towards your parents until they passed. Do you, do you miss your parents now that they're gone? I do. Yeah. I miss them dearly. I, um, you know, they, 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 they were so hard on themselves because they wished that I didn't experience the life that I did. And so I know they, they really beat themselves up. And I definitely used that at times because I was so upset and angry and it was just so confusing for me. And I was constantly coming from a place of being a victim. And so up until when both parents passed is when actually the, the, the majority of my growth really happened. You know, I, I re- was really able to break through and, and, and create some forgiveness because I realized at that point, like, whoa, I'm never going to see them again. All of a sudden, all those resentments that I was holding on to didn't really matter anymore. I, I just wanted them. And, and unfortunately, there was nothing I could do. And so that's actually when I made the decision to start the personal development seminars because I wanted to teach people that 
you know, don't make these decisions after your parents are already gone, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to have forgiveness and have forgiveness for yourself. And so, yeah, that's, that's what actually the leverage that I needed to, to, to become the person that I am today. And I'm so grateful because I know everything that I'm doing today, my parents saw in me and they, and they wanted nothing more than to see me what I'm doing. And, and I know they're so proud of me. And a, a lot of it is living on their legacy, you know, because they, they had so much guilt and shame on, on how they raised me, but they don't realize that experience that I went through has caused me to be who I am today. So whether they know it or not, <laughs> they've created this version of Ryan. And I'm so grateful for that. That's beautiful. That's been the fuel, it sounds like, to your whole mission. And sure. with that, without all that negativity, you wouldn't be where you are today. There's no doubt about that. Correct. So uh, we're getting close to finishing, um, but I do wanted to ask you a few more. Uh, motivational speaker, another thing that you've added to your list, and I've seen that your brand has been growing. So talk to us a little bit. When did you get into the motivational speaking and how important, how critical has the social media been helping you grow? Yeah, it's, it's everything. You know, building uh, brand awareness is, is vital. Um, one, to, 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 to create an environment, a platform of full expression, because there was a time when I was so ashamed of who I was and so ashamed of the things that I did and where I came from. And the, the closer I got to like fully expressing myself and putting myself out there was really the, the, the journey that I was on of, of getting to a place of like self-love and self-acceptance, because today it's like, I understand, you know, the, the first part about brand building is like being authentic and, and being vulnerable. And so I understood the only way for me to do that is I have to heal this stuff. I have to be able to look myself in the mirror and communicate what's going on. And again, it just adds to the mission of, of me wanting to, to share with people that, that are suffering that, that may that may have gone through a very traumatic childhood or maybe in a difficult spot in their life. And uh, I, I've, I've acquired tools over my own healing. And, and, you know, my mentors tell me, Hey, Ryan, you can't keep what you have unless you give it away. And so, and, and even a bigger piece than just that is I don't ever want to be the man that I used to be. And so if I'm constantly teaching the skills that I've learned, then it's staying fresh in my mind. And I know that I am still on that journey of healing. When you see somebody that was in the dumps turn their lives around through your services, through We Level Up, through the events, through the speaking, through reading your book, what, what kind of feeling does that give you? And, and I know it, but you're, it's going to be positive, but like how intense is that feeling? <laughs> Man, it is, it is, it's, it's what it's all about. You know, it's, it's that, that, that euphoric feeling that you get at that point. It just, it, everything makes sense. All of the childhood traumas, all of the challenges, all of the heartaches, all of the, the failures in that moment, there's this thought that goes on. It's, it's like it was all worth it for just this one experience. Mm-hmm. And so when I see somebody that just actually the light goes on and they're literally looking at me and you just know they got it and you know they know they got it, it's just like so rewarding because it's like, most people aren't willing to stand. Most people aren't willing to take the road less traveled. And so somebody needs to do it. And so I'm, I'm grateful that I've had the experiences that I've had to stand. 
and, 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 and to lead and, and to be a servant and to show people what it looks like to, to heal these, these challenging parts of them. Mm. Saving lives one person at a time. There, there's no doubt about that. Uh, Ryan Zofe, uh, let's finish it off. Talk a, real briefly uh, about your book and we'll make sure we link that in the show notes as well. Yeah, sure. So I, you know, again, it was a two and a half year journey. I was so afraid and ashamed to, to, um, to write the book and, and, and share it because I, I talk about some real traumatic experiences and, and so things that I, I wasn't so proud of. And, and through my journey, I realized like, this is, this is who I am, you know? And, and as soon as I can love all parts of me, is when I know that I'm on my healing, my, my, my healing journey. And so, you know, publishing the book was, was a long journey. And, and so I'm just grateful that, that I was able to get to a place where I can fully express it. And I've, and I've had a lot of love and a lot of support. A lot of people have messaged me and reached out to me and they're just so proud of me. And uh, I'm so grateful for that because it just shows, you know, doing, doing the work, especially when it doesn't feel like it's, it's, when when it's challenging, they say repetition is the mother of skill, you know, and it's like, I just keep getting in there and getting the reps in. And then eventually it's like, wow, all this stuff, you know, you have, there's this moment of like, wow, it's, it's, it's all worth it. You know, it's, it's, it just, it just feels so good. An unlikely businessman from overdose to multimillionaire. We've linked that in the show notes, talks about Ryan's journey, personal development, and, and really, providing inspiration that it's never too late to turn your life around. Uh, where else can people find you online, website, et cetera? Yeah. So my website's ryanzofe.com. Um, also, you can you know, follow me on Instagram, ryan.zofe. That's where we do all of our promotions and you know different events and what's going on. So that'd be the easiest way to get in contact with me. Beautiful. And, and we've linked that up in the show notes as well, guys. Check it out if you want to learn more about Ryan and his mission. Hey, man, uh, really appreciate the vulnerability. Really appreciate you being raw and open today and wishing you continued success. I appreciate you, Nate. Thank you so much.